the original beer, just a slight little roastiness to it.
And you all know what just started this week, right? The Brewers holiday. It's not October yet. It's month of Ramadan. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Is that why you're brewing at night? Because you can't do it in the day? Yeah. <laughs> no work is um, So, you know, actually, despite the name, Oktoberfest begins September 15th. Anybody remember what an Oktoberfest commemorates? You were big. Not the wedding of Prince. Yeah, the wedding of Prince whoever and some queen that we all forgot after the first big drinking binge. <laughs> yeah. And actually, what was more memorable was the horse race. It commemorates a horse race. Not sure which one, but it commemorates a horse race.
picks up the banana immediately, picks up the clove, um, picks up and then tastes it. He goes, this isn't like pollinators, it's more like vine and stuff. She nailed it on the head because it was vine and stuff and yeast, but it was a very big, a very big uh, spice nut, so couldn't mistake it. Um, and she went over to the Pilsner, which was fermented with Vine uh, Yeast 2001, which is the Pilsner Hotel yeast, and made with uh, spalt and sock sauce. And she took a whiff of that. She looked at it funny, took another whiff of it. It's very chat. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm starting to fall in love. <laughs> and uh, brought her over to the bot. And I don't know if I remember telling you the story about the bot, but she took a smell and she goes, it's a little fruity. It wasn't, I mean, the fruity was really, really subtle. It was very clean. And she tasted it. She goes, that's not quite, there's not quite the caramel note I would expect from it, but it's got a nice Munich note. It's nice. And, I mean, she's giving me really technical insights in these things. And she hit it on the head because it was a speed block. My actual block, um had a tragedy where a valve came off of a hose and the pump pumped it all down the drain while I took a bathroom break during recirculation. Whirlpool, right? rather. Yeah, pumps don't work real fast. That um, happened yeah. over at JJ's. After we had a big brew here, and it was cleaning up, and this big two and a half inch hose came up during recirculation. It was, it was about two inches deep throughout the whole time. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> So that was a tragedy. It took me more than a month to be able to get around to it. So about a month ago, I got to making that block again. And I went without the crystal malt normally in it. And it was about a 30% unit malt, uh, the rest of it, a little bit of chocolate, and the rest of it was filter malt. And I fermented it with a cold yeast so that I could get the fast fermentation, a clean fermentation, and a little bit of lagering time, and the sulfur would be gone. And it, it came out just in time. It was ready to, uh, it was ready to, uh, Carbonate last Sunday, so I carbonated this week. And turned and she she nailed it. Uh, and then so she finally I gave her the doppelbot. And at this point I'm trying to think of you know well rings maybe I don't know. But, um, she, you know she uh, I gave her the uh, smoked doppelbot and she so she goes oh this is the caramel I'm looking for but it's also got it's got smokiness to it that's nice and takes another whiff of it another sip of it just. Oh, what is that city that this smoke is like? That city, that city. Mm, it's, in, it's a German city where they grow a lot of different smoke beers, and I can't remember. Bamberg? That's the one. Yeah, they do all kinds of smoke beers there. This is very much like what they would do. So, four for four. Did you say yes or no? <laughs>
apparently the Germans don't get some. Comments on that beer? It's good. <laughs> I like this. Um, when you think Oktoberfest, is that bigger or smaller than you might think of as a beer? Seems smaller? It's one of the flaws that uh, home brewers and uh, judges look for is they tend to look for more body than is actually there in commercial examples. That's just about right. It's a relatively light drinkable beer. It's lighter than it used to be maybe say 15, 20 years ago and uh, certainly has more balancing hop than it used to be. It used to be a little bit sweeter and a little bit chewier, but really this is where they are presently uh, in terms of style. So, but it's all about the balance, obviously. you ever find that Munich notes and sherry notes kind of blend together really well and it's can yeah. one can be mistaken for the other? Yes. Because Munich is uh, Munich, Munich malt has a breadiness to it, has a, a, a venuousness to it that works out really well. Uh, almost like rye bread. And so it's very easy to think, ah, uh, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and this beer. Quite as much 
quite as much body. I think that's a, an accurate statement. It's actually a little less sweet, but it's less alcoholic, too. Stephen, dark, what they call spurk beer, spurk beer. Dunkles just means dark. Doesn't mean anything else. So anything can be dunkle or it can be hellas or light. Scary now. <laughs> 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 
first striking thing about this compared to, say, even the... Light, light, light color. Light lighter. <laughs> what color would you say that that is? Golden, dark golden, honey gold. Not the clarity on the spirit. Moderately hazy. Would you expect haziness in this style? So what might be your first impression of a haze like that? What's causing it? What would be? Give me two causes. Could be a chill haze. Okay. What could be another cause? Yeast suspension. Yeah. Two main causes. There's a third one. If it warms up and it stays this hazy, it could also be an indication of severe oxidation. Because when things get severely oxidized, they start to form a permanent haze. But by then, the cardboard you can smell from about here. Yeah. I think it's yeast. No, cloudier than most. <laughs> oh, you think it might be? Yeah, it's not it could be a Kreisenbeer. Oh, wow. yeah. It is, in fact, a Kreisenbeer. Thanks, Kevin. Give us a little yeast in that spot. Well, vitamin B to wake us up. So, aromatically, how is this beer? Maybe compared to the flavor memory of the first beer? Are they similar, perhaps, between the two? Yes, sweet. Well, not it's not memory of that. It's not a biscuity, that works. Right, biscuity is good, toasty. Caramel? No. Exactly. There can be caramel malt in it, but it should never be an overt flavor. Uh, I did detect a little bit of it in there, just as kind of part of the mouthfeel, and just kind of part of a, a little toffee-like finish to it. Kind of a butter toffee finish. Uh, and they need a little toasty almond, another indicator, usually of some caramel sometimes. Uh, any chocolate malt? Any chocolate notes of it? Got a little bit of the finish. Or is that bitterness? Chocolatey without having like the roast chocolatey. The Germans are very light handed at their beers. They have these, they exercise a very delicate malt touch in most of the actually every style, including Pilsner, where it's primarily Pilsner malt being the star, but there can be other, sometimes other little little things in there, caramels or, or some such thing. Not typically with real good German examples where they use caramels, but every now and then it's in there. And they might use slightly aromatic ones. A little mineraliness? Water note? In, in the end, finish. Would you attribute that to the water? Giving it a drier finish? Or would you attribute that maybe to alcohol? Kind of warming? Maybe a little maybe, peppery? Yeah, maybe the, maybe the alcohol or the yeast finishes. Alcohol, a high amount of alcohol will have a thinning effect on the body. It will give you the impression of a thinner body than is actually there. And I'd say this is reasonably alcoholic. So 
need to make any claims. But what would we expect the alcohol range to be on this? They're claiming 6.9%. But it does have a, a richness to it, but it still has a very drinkable mouthfeel. Again, it's not big and chewy. Just because it's a big beer alcohol-wise, it's not a big chewy beer. It's one you could easily cut off work for a little while and go to a beer garden and have one of those and forget about going back. But, but definitely you could do a liter of that. Or most of them. Then. <laughs> How does that compare, you think, to the Baltica at first? Do you think the Baltica is closer to that or closer to what we had as a Munich dump? Everything tastes better. Yeah. Your notes become 
illegible. Or Irish sales reps. Are most of uh, Hofra's beers in green bottles? I don't Let's say, well, 
let it cool down. Over Let's say the brewer didn't have a work chiller and they poured it in with some hot water and went to bed, got up the next morning and pitched deep. You know, so it went from basically 140, 150 degrees down to maybe 80 or 90 the next morning. So wouldn't that be more of a DMS issue? Maybe, but if they had a longer than a 75 to 90 minute boil, there wouldn't be any DMS left unless it was created by some sort of bacterial well, remember, sanitizing is just that. You are knocking the population, the bacterial count, down to a level where it is essentially negligible to a reasonable yeast fish. You are never eliminating it. Eliminating it is, is sterilization, and that's not possible for a brewer, commercial or home brewer. Um, commercial brewers can get very, very close to it. Uh, but honestly, most labs won't do a bacterial count for the uh, home brewer because even a clean example will just light up a petri dish. Sorry. Uh, but when wort is allowed to just kind of sit, there's a long lifetime between the time that uh, fermentation begins, uh, you know, pitching and fermentation begins. Uh, when, when wort's allowed to sit, that bacterial count can grow. And anytime it's between the temperatures of 140 and essentially 45 degrees, the bacterial count, depending upon the species, can double as frequently as every 20 minutes and double its population. So if you figure that you're getting a six-fold increase every hour from what you started with, you know, it's pretty healthy bacterial count by the next morning. So the proper things to tell this person are get a work chiller, use a work chiller for a quick chill, uh, pitch a good healthy yeast and give them an amount, say one pint of slurry to a five gallon batch, it's a good round number. Uh, it will almost always assure a very good fermentation, especially if it's a, a fresh yeast. That's the other thing you tell them to do. Uh, Primarily, this kind of spoilage is like a, um, a zymonis or post-fermentation of the on the zymonis level or other sort of cochleal uh, bacteria rather than rod bacteria like uh, lactobacillus. And it will also usually enter into the fray prior to fermentation in the form of the pterobacter. Um, other sort of factors that way that are easily killed by even a slight amount of fermentation. So um, once they've gotten hold of it and they put those flavor compounds in it, yeah, yeast is going to take over and kill them because even a small amount of fermentation will kill off pathogens. It only takes enough fermentation basically to carbonate a bottle to kill pathogens. Um, they don't survive fermentation at all. But uh, once the flavor components are in there, they're pretty much impossible to get out. Uh, so a good healthy pitch and making sure that they have a short lag time by using a wort chiller, um, by making sure that it comes down with the proper fermentation temperature, pitching a healthy yeast right away are some of the best advice you can give somebody with this kind of vegetable character. Okay, for feedback.
because that may come up on the exam, and it certainly will come up in competitions. I need to pitch that piece when I get home. <laughs> you might want to leave right now. Yeah, I need to get out of here, guys. I don't want to make you paranoid or nothing, but you know, lights and sirens might be something to consider. Phone call. Yeah. What's the name of call. I never had it. And obviously, that's a spoiled example. Contamination in a bottle like that takes an enormous amount of time. I will, I, I would be willing to bet Doc's left nut that that's at least a year. That's at least a year old. Two to one on that. I don't think you and I have anything to lose, Kev. Brick red. How's the head? 
Creamy thick persists as a solid cover or maybe a thick collar or something. Um, and would you remember what we consider appropriate head retention? It cannot fall or it doesn't fall by more than half in one minute. Okay? So that would be considered good foam stand or good head retention. Aroma? Caramel, coffee, melanoidins. Lots of rich melanoidins. Melanoidins are the flavor components derived by cooking. They're what makes seared steak taste so good. Uh, roast meat, that crust you get on the outside, that is entirely melanoidins. It is a process of heat, water, and proteins working together to create flavor, well, flavonoids and coloring compounds. Melanoidins per se don't have flavor, but you can't have the flavor without the melanoidins, or vice versa. And how are we with, what other descriptors can we put into the aroma? Toasted almonds? This might go sherry. Any fruitiness? Well, raisins, oh, raisins are fruit. <laughs> sure, raisins are fruit. Are we deriving that raisin from the malt melanoidins or from yeast esters? <coughs> specifically, I was asking about yeast esters. Getting any yeast esters out of it? No. Absolutely correct. How about any hot? No hot. On a score sheet, it is appropriate to write not only what you find in a beer, but what you do not find in a beer. On every style, you should be uh, making notes about hops. No hop detected as expected for style. That's a perfectly appropriate evaluation. You're telling the brewer what they did right. Every bit is important as telling them what they might do better. Okay. So, reflected in the flavor. Sweetness. Nuttiness. Caramel. Toastiness. Breadiness. Bread crust, more of the melanoidins. You could go on and on and on describing this beer. Or these types of beers, where they're really rich like this. Um, you could be just as descriptive about an American light lager by saying, no, no detected melanoidins. I don't mean that to be absurd, but you'd be surprised at how many people would think, oh, well, I got to boil it a long time to get rid of the DMS, or I got to do this, or I got to do that, and they may overboil it, or they may have scorched, or they may have done other things. You can, you can note what they did right by saying, you know, appropriate lightness of malt, or appropriate, you know, flavor of a, of a of hops, or absence of flavors. Additionally, it's becoming quite trendy for graders to look for a note about DMS and diacetyl on every uh, 
square sheet. That is, you want to note, no DMS, no DAS, if not are present. So you want to look for DMS and DAS in every year. Mostly because they're very common artifacts of the board's process. Okay. Aftertaste? Alcohol. Alcoholic warmth. All warmth. Temperiness? No. Kind of smooth, huh? So you say smooth alcohol warmth. So I do you know, a smooth alcohol warm would be a tier two dose. Mouthfeel. Creaminess. Yeah. Creaminess is what I'm Carbonation. Appropriate. Low. Medium to low. Any astringence? Well, yeah, maybe because I poured it and we passed it out, it's not warmed up, and they're tiny little samples that you cast out real quick. Um, well, yeah, moderate carbonation. But no astringents, so you might make out no astringents. One thing to be very careful of with astringents, DMS, diacetyl, is not to be a fault finder looking for it every year. If you don't find it, right, you didn't find it, that's why. If you wait long enough, almost every year, has some astringents. So it's kind of unfair to be saying, oh yeah, 30 seconds after I finished sipping, I got astringent. <laughs> kind of outside the realm of where the beer is supposed to be. You know. uh, there are, I know, there are judges that note astringents on virtually every beer. Because, yeah, if you wait long enough, it's always there. It's the nature of the grape. But it's an unfair comment if it really isn't there affecting the overall experience of the beer in the finish. So just kind of a little, little affirmation. So,
faster by 40 days. Yeah. It doesn't make fasting any easier, but it sure does make does make it more pleasant. It makes time fly. I think it makes it these are um, liquid breads. A little bit bigger sample to sip on while I drone on about process. <laughs> that I'm going to be doing more solid analysis about these beers and more um, looking for more descriptions and we're going to get a I hope you guys are trying to uh, answer the, the questions that are getting sent in email, oh, yeah. trying the quizzes that kind of thing do feel free to send them back to me and I mean that very seriously because you may think you have a perfect answer but I will point out to you quickly I'm supposed to cut your spam filter because you guys are definitely on the list. No, we just didn't get any oh, beer. Oh, didn't get any beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just really talking about clarity. You're right. right. <laughs> I think there was some beer. A little light and good. I think we started with a taste. I'm like. Here's a little extra. I, I get your email. I just don't respond. Oh. <laughs> I don't have to have a response. I just. Last week you told me you didn't get an email. So. No, I only didn't get one email, which is okay. really the bizarre I'm thing. sorry you didn't get beer. Let's get over it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't get one email you sent, which is the oddest thing. So, this one being the, the uh, top of the list, top of the line. Notice the color again? Lighter than the last one. Definition of all the beers made or all the styles available. 
and they are most certainly not a limit to brewer creativity. You know, they don't stop you from doing whatever you want to do. And I made a smoked doppelbach that was way darker than this, sweeter than this in the finish. Um, you know, started at 1100 and finished around 1026, so it's quite sweet. Um, and you know, it definitely had a, a pronounced smokiness to it that you wouldn't expect in that style. It's not American. And uh, so brewer creativity is never limited. But what it does do, what the style guidelines do, is give you a target. And they let you answer the question of, are you a good enough brewer to hit what you're aiming at? Um, it's one thing to make a beer and name it after it's made. <laughs> yeah, more like this. It's another thing to, to set out and say, I'm going to make this beer and have it end up where you want. It takes practice, it takes skill, and it takes an understanding of the ingredients and process. And as a judge, I very much want to make the evaluation of what you were aiming at and where you hit the target. How, how center were you to the target? How much of a bullseye did you make? And that bullseye is not based on uh, technical stats or absolute precision with the ingredients listed in the guidelines or in the book, but based on your balance. So as a brewer, that's the most important intangible that you bring to the table is your ability to balance a beer. And the way that we balance beers has as much to do with an understanding of the ingredients that we've gone through as it does with understanding the process of how to turn the, those ingredients into beer. The maltsters done their job, made malt. The hop growers have done their job and provided a quality hop. Your water company is doing its job at keeping the pumps on. And you know your job is to go out and shop for yeast. Your brew store does that job. Though, do buy more than yeast from them. It's the lowest markup item. Uh, this particular beer, balanced towards the sweet, very much alcohol is in there to provide the rest of the balance rather than hot. That's one place where you can gain balance. So let's talk about processes that go into making some beers. Thank <laughs> you. 
are going to get you right in the ballpark. And you don't have to state on there that you're using a rule of five or rule of four or what your, your target temperature is going to be or anything like that. But you can say, based on, if you use this target mass temperature, uh, you'll be able to say, if the grain's around 70 degrees, my, mash, my strike water should be around 162 to hit 154 degree mesh. Okay? And you'll be correct. So let's talk a little bit about processes. Process begins with a quality uh, crush of grains. The grain pieces should ideally end up in various sizes getting about five pieces out of each grain and getting a pretty good piece of husk out of it as well. And you might get a few other little pieces of husk as well. To get in there, um, don't be alarmed by those, but you want primarily good long pieces of husk. Good, fat, wide, long pieces of husk. The books say the textbook is somehow being able to actually crush them all and pull all of that starch out from it and have an empty husk that looks like the shape of a grain. Almost never happens. Almost never. With home malt mills and such, they tend to shred husks a lot. And by simply paying attention to mash pH, sparge pH, and final uh, gravity of the runnings, you can avoid any astringents from those, from those shredded husks. But they can make watering a little bit more difficult. So the classic grist, grist if you get five or six good-sized chunks and a lot of dust from the, um, from the grain, and if it was measured out in weight, it winds up being around 2% dust. Wow, that doesn't work. And around 70% crush. Perfect. And around 28% that's too big or too small, and about 2% uncrushed. Okay, by weight. Um, and commercial situations, hmm? Yeah, you can really read that, huh? 2% of the weight of grain, the total weight. Okay? So it's tiny little percentages are going to be dust or uncrushed. So all that dust that may fly out, and I said, that's a good part of your extract. It's an easy place to get a bunch of stuff out of the grain. So textbook crushes are pretty well covered in most of the books. They're especially well covered in... Um,
themselves into a mash. The most basic of mashes is an infusion mash. Quite literally, all we're doing is infusing water. So we are going to have to add hot water to the grain to get conversion of starches into sugar. This classic infusion is primarily related to what styles of beer? English Almost all of them these days, but classically, English ales. Five or six degrees. 
So, this is the coefficient of the, of the heat based on the volume of the water. But for all intents and purposes, it's the coefficient of the heat here. It maintains itself as a constant. So, if we want a mass target of 154, and nominal grain temperature, let's say, is 74, we're going to wind up with 24 times 120. Anybody want to do that calculation? Because I wasn't ready enough to bring my calculation. Ratio much lower than about one or one and a quarter. 
to the one. So. All right. So we apply that temperature. And we'll wind up with a single step. And what we're looking for there is just a temperature where we're going to get conversion of the grains. It assumes over-modified or fully modified grains. It assumes pretty much an all-malt work. You're not dealing with a lot of adjuncts. You're not dealing with a lot of huskless uh, grains like rye or wheat. Um, if you are going to use some, some things like that, then you want to add a little rice hull or oat hull if you've got a high percentage of wheat or a high percentage of rye. And by high percent, we mean pretty much anything over about 20%. 15, 20%. Um, husk uh, weight is only about 1% of the total weight of uh, the grain. And so if you're going to add, you really don't have to add much more than about a handful of uh, hulls for even five or six pounds of grain. Not very much at all. The beautiful part about them is, is rice hulls and oak hulls uh, do not add any astringents. So even if you overuse them, you're not in too bad shape. Okay, so that's the easiest, simplest kind of mash. If the maltster's done their job, it's a very easy thing to do. Most breweries, including those making the doppel box that we had today, are basically using infusion mash because almost all grain is fully modified. But for purposes of the exam, we want to start talking about some real issues and control that are brought out by either really, really traditional old school methods such as decoction or newer school methods called profile mashing. And a profile mash is basically decoction without the boiling. You're going to hit specific temperature targets to create certain enzymatic activity. You lose some of the actions, the mechanical actions and the chemical actions that are involved in decoction, but based on using over-modified or well-modified grain, you're not really going to lose much of anything in the end. Uh, you certainly can gain a certain amount of time. This system is designed all about the profile mesh. Any rim system, perm system, anything that, that allows for the injection of heat into the mash after going in is a profile mash system, okay, by definition. Any kind of system that uses just a plain old igloo cooler is by definition typically an infusion system, unless you're able to pull that out and recirculate and send it back in. But in all of these cases, profile mesh systems usually involve some method of external heat. You're never directly firing the mesh. Are you moving the grist through the hot water to heat it up, or running the hot water through? You're actually moving the liquid. Okay, right. But you move the liquid. So you're pulling the actual liquid out of the mesh. Yeah, you're pulling the, only the liquid. You're leaving the grist, which is the grain itself. Your grist is, your, is all of your grains as a combined unit, is your grist. You're leaving the grist alone, you're pulling the wort through it and effectively heating it. And you're heating 
the enzymes at the same time. So there has to be some gentleness involved because it's very easy, or can be very easy, to denature the enzymes or stop them from action, from working. But as we'll find out, it, the mash does some magic buffering for us and uh, kind of stops us from being our own worst enemies. So we'll talk about profile mashing. With a profile, we can say that we care about what enzymes are, are acting at what amount of time based on temperature and based on the style of the beer. So in order to understand a profile, we have to start with an understanding of enzymes and an understanding of malt. When we have a good crush, like we talked about, what's happened is, is we created surface area around the grain that allows water to get in and penetrate more quickly. Cooked meat, a big slab, a roast, cooks far more slowly in the same amount of heat than cutting it up into small little bits, where you can cook it through much faster. Well, if you look at heat as basically the same kind of uh, penetration as water will give it, you are looking at the same effect. Cutting the, the grain into small little pieces allows access by water into the grain, allowing that grain to swell up and absorb, which activates enzymes. Enzymes are completely inactive without water. They require water at least as far as these grain enzymes are concerned. Um, so, we have a temperature range, and for a brewer, it's pretty much 170 on down to about 90. Okay? That's the range at which the water is going to have an effect and create enzymatic reactions fast enough for us to be able to produce beer without dying of thirst first. Um, the seed, if given water, will germinate, which is the mashing process, as you remember, and will grow an acrospire and turn itself into a whole new grass seed. And in doing so, every one of those enzymes that we want to use in growth becomes active because it has water in it, but it takes weeks for it to deplete all of the reserves that it has in that seed. Basically a giant backpack of food. And so what we do in malting is to create the grain that lets us then turn around and have something that we can turn into beer. Okay. Without it, we'd never be able to turn, without malting, we'd never be able to turn grain into beer. Okay? Or we would have to figure out some method within the mash to help extract the things that will turn them into a decent beer. So down here, at the lowest temperatures, we have specific enzymes called phytase. Glucanase, um, really very very basic 
not very temperature tolerant um, types of enzymes. In some over-modified malts, English-style modified malts, these may not even exist in very large amounts because the malting process has already begun that breakdown that these things create. Phycase, specifically, breaks down phycin, which becomes phosphate. and has the effect of lowering mash pH. Okay. Beta-glucanase is really important because there's an entire matrix of stuff that the malt, the starches, are stuck in. And part of this matrix is glucans. So the glucans are essentially this hard, tough shell, a leathery, tough shell that has to be given water in order to burst open or break. And when it bursts open and breaks, they call that gelatinization. And the starches themselves can now be saturated with water. And once they're saturated with water, they're now available to the, uh, the enzymes. So beta-glucanase is important, especially in, say, wheat beers, where you have, we call it a protein content, because complex starches are essentially, come from, come from uh, proteins. And the, um, the protein shell is the, glu is the uh, glucan. Got off my off track there for a second. The glucan is a protein shell, and that protein shell needs to be broken down. And when that protein shell is broken down, again, obviously the, the starches are available. But um, the beta glucanase will break those uh, starchy those shells open faster than simply waiting for heat to do the same thing. And once it does that, you actually have more starch available which increases your efficiency, increases the clarity of your beer because you've broken down these proteins, and actually makes for greater um, extraction out of uh, the grain in general. Uh, your wort's going to run clearer, run better, run faster. You will know that you have these beta-glucans. You'll get them in every, every single malt because as you recirculate, this gray, gummy stuff ends up on top. And that's the glucan. That's glucan that has simply been burst open um, by hitting a very low protein rest or an acid rest. You accelerate the process. So a 90 degree rest is an acid rest. Beta glucanase works all the way up into about 130 degrees. The classic protein rest is at 120 degrees or 121 degrees. That's the classic protein rest because it's allowing beta-glucanase and proteases, which are become active at about 100 degrees, 
proteases to both work to reduce the proteins and expose more starches. So it isn't really important to start at 90 degrees, but starting between 121 to about 130 degrees, and you are going to start to break down um, proteins faster, more effectively, and allow more starches available for conversion later on. There are various other enzymes that, that matter, but the next one that we care about as brewers is beta-glucanase, or sorry, uh, beta-amylase, thank you. You're sleepy and I, you're smarter than me. <laughs> Wake up in the middle. And that begins to get active at 140. and likes it all the way up to about 150.
Some proteases work all the way up to 135 degrees, but the primary ones like it right in this realm right here, 121 to 130 degrees. Alpha amylase is basically going to come along here and it's just going to randomly start chopping. It's going to start chopping off the limbs of the tree in random fashion. So it's going to come along and it's going to create longer molecules and occasionally it's going to create the dual molecule maltose, the disaccharide maltose. But mostly it's going to create these longer chain dextrins. Well, the dextrinases come along and help with that as well. They're doing basically the same thing. And once we have these molecule chains floating around, beta-glucanase comes in on either end and it nibbles from the ends, straight in, two molecules at a time. And we'll create maltose and we'll create glucose. You can see that even in an odd number, you're going to wind up sometimes with a single molecule left over. And even in an all-malt work, if measured, there winds up being about 2 to 3 percent glucose. This is our fermentable. This is what the yeast uses, turns it into alcohol. These are dextrins. These will give body, mouthfeel, and residual sweetness. Beta amylase is only active for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then it's done. Especially in the upper temperature ranges. Alpha amylase will go on for several hours and continue to reduce and reduce and reduce. Limit dextrinase is very cool because if we allow our mash to go for a full 60 minutes, limit dextrinase, what alpha amylase can't do, what most dextrinases can't do, is that as this thing is basically a tree with all of these branches coming off of it, and it munches it all the way down, what we wind up with are these chains that go kind of like this. Where we have just a couple of molecules in there and we wind up with these little Y-shaped dextrins. Limit dextrinase takes them right down to that Y. Limit dextrinase. We'll take it right down to the very tree and basically push more starch out available for uh, beta-glucan to work on and for alpha amylase to work on. So that they don't spend so much time just breaking down starches into dextrins, or uh, in the case of alpha amylase, but it starts to come in, and if it's given a three or four molecule chop, you know, it may hit it right in the half, or it may create one dextrin and one glucose molecule adding to the fermentability of the work. Limit dextrinase hates it up at around 155-156 degrees. It doesn't last very long, doesn't work very well. That's one of the main reasons why we get so much more of a dextrinase work. 
data glue can doesn't work very fast, very far. So basically you're left with alpha amylase doing all the work and it's basically doing random cuts. So you're going to wind up with more dextrins with a higher mash temperature. With a lower mash temperature, you're going to get the limit dextrinases working as well as the uh, alpha amylase and the beta amylase all working together and you're going to wind up with a more fermentable worm. How much more fermentable? Typically 20-25% more fermentable. You'll notice that your beers are a lot more alcoholic with 150 degree mash and you know it's, they finish incredibly high if you hit 154, 155, 156 degrees. It's just amazing. So this little window of control between about 150 to 156 is the brewer's window. That's where the brewer exercises all the control over the texture of the beer. That's why a one or two degree difference can make all the difference in the world. So what a profile mash will do is recirculate and basically infuse heat into the liquid, pushing the temperature ever higher over a period of time. You can do it continuously, so it's a very linear rise, or you can rest, do a beta glucan rest at 140 degrees, and then rise again, and do an amylase rest at 150 to 155 degrees, and then come all the way up to mash out, which it usually says 165 degrees to 168. At the upper end of um, the temperature range, the enzymes don't work so good, so they tend to stop working pretty, pretty quickly. They can still work at that range, but they're not very effective. What's actually happening to those enzymes is they don't die per se, they do something called denature. Denaturing is simply a term for losing its water. They, they exude the water, they basically corkscrew up, and they will not reabsorb the water. So they stop. So when the enzyme is denatured, it's done. It doesn't reactivate. If you've ever overshot your, your target, you've ended up here at 157, 158 degrees. This is where we're taking advantage of the fact that it takes time for water to get into the ground. You have about 10 minutes to correct it. You haven't killed your mash just because instantly it's gotten too hot. Maybe the stuff in the dust has denatured pretty quickly, but you've got about 10 minutes to bring it down. And there's still plenty of amylase in there to get conversion. Okay? So you, it, you know, it's correctable. Nice and forgiving. Well, if we don't have pumps and recirculative tubing and ways of adding you know, precise amounts of heat and the rest of it, as was the case so long ago, and we were working with ingredients that were not so well modified. We needed some way to be able to get the best out of the grain, and basically what we got was a protein-laden, hazy, lumpy mess. It didn't taste very good, didn't have much alcohol. We really didn't care. Um, so by happenstance, 
anybody who's cooked a little bit of porridge knows that the, the water starts to get a haziness to it when you're cooking porridge. So if, I, if I'm a brewer and I'm cooking my breakfast and I realize, though, and I'm wondering why the hell my beers won't turn out, and I notice that my porridge has this kind of gummy, starchy thing going on in the water before it gets real thick, I think, hmm, what how that might apply to this other grain that I'm using for beer, the barley. So I'll take some hot water and I'll add it in and I'll start down here. I'll start down here. The technical term for adding water to grain is doughing in. So I'll dough in, and I'll get this rest where it absorbs a lot of water. And I start to notice, hey, I'm getting a little of that gumminess just kind of sitting there. Cool. I don't need a thermometer. I can just tell that this is what I call blood hot. I can get in there with my hands. I can mix it all up. I can get the water all in there. You know, we can, we're not burning ourselves. Now my porridge gets awfully hot and it's all by itself and you know I pour it off into the bowl and I add a little bit of milk to it and that brings the temperature down to where I can actually uh, make it work but it also brings up the temperature of the milk. Huh. So if I only take a little bit of this mash out and I boil it like porridge and then add it back in, just like heating my milk, it should probably heat my mash. Amazingly, that works. And by taking one-third of the thickest portion of the mash, is the term they use, what they're meaning is the grains. You leave the water behind. Leave the water behind because that's where the enzymes are. Leave them alone. And you're picking up one-third of that mash. Not all of it. Just a bit of it. And you're going to cook it. And you're going to bring it up in modern parlance, you're going to bring it up like a profile, and you're going to stop right at about 155 degrees, and you're going to let it sit for about 15 minutes. 150 to 155 degrees. Why? Because you have pulled the starches out, and you still have active enzymes in there. You're going to take advantage of those active enzymes before you denature them, and you're going to let the beta glucan do its work. Create as much fermentability out of there as you can. About 10, remember, it's got a short lifetime, 20 minutes or so. Let it rest for 10 to 15 minutes. And then you continue to bring the temperature up. Stir it. Stir, stir, stir. Because as you are direct firing, you will scorch. There's enough thermal mass down there. It doesn't transfer heat very well. It's getting full of proteins. We talked about uh, melanoidins. You don't want to create melanoidins because the ultimate melanoidin is a scorch. So you stir to keep that heat moving and in the mass and keep it raising temperature at one big equal pot. And then, much like your porridge, once it comes to a boil, you're going to keep stirring it and let it boil like a porridge. Okay? It is not infrequent for brewers to add water to a decoction to thin it out and let that heat transfer a little bit better, a little bit faster. While water obviously ends up boiling off, that's fine. Most of it ends up boiling off. Even though you're adding it back in, you're still going to get a good mash. 
and you would take that, now boiled, for after about 15-20 minutes of boiling, it has gelatinized, and you will take that and add it back into your mash. And what it will manage to do, again the magic of a, of a mash, is raise it from wherever you started up to just about the next window. So it's going to take it from this fighting bit of blue can west right up into the protein rest area. Repeat the process. Take another third out. Start the whole boiling process and the rest of it. And you'll find if you do decoction matches, that pretty much as soon as you go in, you're grabbing that first third and you're taking it, you put it on the stove because a half an hour has gone by by the time it ends up back in the mash and that's the, that's the rest time for that, that uh, step. And then you're grabbing more mash right away um, and starting the process over again. So you're constantly working the mash. You're not actually sitting there waiting for it to finish or waiting for it to rest and then go. Because the mash itself is resting for the entire time you're doing the decoction. Okay. On that second boil, does it need to rest for 15 minutes like the first one? Or yeah, can you would continue to do that because you're, you know, each time you're pulling out more beta-glucanase and you're giving it that chance to make that little rest. And so it'll go from there up to, typically, a nice lower beta-glucan rest. And then you'll pull it and it'll come out again, right there to a nice high, actually goes up a little bit higher than that, right up to where about 155 degrees where alpha amylase likes to live and finishes it out and then comes right on up to about 168, 170 degrees as a mash up. You're looking at one, two, three, four decoctions, quadruple decoctions. Even German precision says that's too much work. Okay. So they tended to take out a little bit more mash first, and right after dough-in, they used to try to hit right at the 120 degree mark. They would completely uh, pass this by. However, in early um, malting, when they would get chip malt, when they would get very, very under-modified malts, it required this bit of glutenase rest in order to get any efficiency out of it. Once you have moderately modified malt, which is basically three quarters of the way on up, on up to full, fully modified, you, you use this rest primarily for wheats and for other high protein grains. Okay? So they've eliminated this, and then they have one, two um, decoctions, and that's a nice double decoction, and that tended to be the standard. The triple decoction or the quadruple decoction ended up, you know, starting one, two, three decoctions. That's right, this is not a decoction up here. This is mashup. And they tended to do away with this third triple decoction and just did the dual decoction to get what they needed out of the grains. Um, magic of decoction is each time you do those, you are in fact releasing phosphate by the vigor of the boil. You're bursting beta-glucanase by the vigor of the boil and by the sheer intensity of the heat. Uh, and in, doing, in, in releasing phosphate, you're actually lowering the pH of the mash. 
as it happens to turn out, protein rests tend to like thicker meshes and tend to like slightly higher pH. Compared to amylase rests, which like slightly thinner meshes, and like a lower pH. By a few degrees, few tenths of a degree, in terms of uh, how much pH swing. I don't think it's any more than a half. Is it a half point? Yeah. These guys, these guys like it right around 5.4. These guys like it right around 6. So, you know, it's not much of a swing. Start early. Yeah. <laughs> this winds up being a long day. Um, but, you know, the Germans compensate with it by having two week long festivals to celebrate the making of beer in the form of Oktoberfest. Okay, so decoction gets to these by boiling. Here's another cool thing and a reason to learn metric. Magically, magically, the metric system works for beer because it's a lot easier to remember the metric numbers for the temperature than it is to remember these odd numbers of 92 degrees, 121 degrees, 132 degrees, 151, 152, 158, 168, 164, and all the things that go on at those rates. But it is to remember that these guys in Celsius is 40, 50, 67. Classic decoction, 50, 67. It's almost like uh, brewing was, or the, this temperature scale was created for brewing. Maybe! <laughs> Maybe! But it was really created for boiling water, but it just happens to work, I guess. I don't know. But, yeah. Um, so, a protein rest is 40 degrees Celsius. A low sacrification or beta amylase rest is 50 degrees Celsius. An alpha amylase rest or brewer's window is 60 degrees Celsius. Mash-out is 70 degrees Celsius. Does everybody here practice mash-out or do a mash-out? A few of you do. It's hard to get to sometimes, isn't it? But it's worth it. If you notice the textural difference to your beers, if you just decide, eh, 162 is fine versus an actual 165 degrees. The question I got is, you have it set for 168, and then you go to 170. Yeah, mostly because that's where the tannins start to come. So we stay just shy of it. What we want, what we're basically trying to do at mash out is to lower the viscosity of the sugary water. Make it easier to pull out. By hot oil, moves much easier than cold oil. Okay? Hot syrup moves much easier than cold syrup. Does not change the density of sugars within that syrup, but sure makes it easier to get out of it. Okay? So that's one of the reasons that we're trying to do it. And we stay shy of that 170 degrees because that temperature can start to pull graininess, tannins, graininess off sorts of flavors from grain. Remember when we talked about what your actual extract could be from grain, but that includes everything that's water-soluble. 
all of the proteins, all of the tannins, all of the starches, all of the sugars. Not all of those are desirable in beer. So we eliminate those things that we don't want, and it just so happens that temperature and exposure uh, and pH help us give those controls. So as brewers, we have that control. But something really kind of magic happens right here at 165 degrees. There's actually some changes, some structural changes that go on simply because of the heat and simply because of the enzymatic activity. Changes to some of the glucans and a lot of whatever uh, leftover proteins and dextrins are going on in there. And the end result is that it's what we call foam positive. Fancy way of saying it enhances head retention. A really, really nice pilsner is going to just have this head that just lingers on forever if you end up right at 165 degrees to 168 and let it stay there for about 10, 15 minutes before you start starching because structural changes take place in there that have positive foam effects later on in the finished beer. It's actually something I just learned in the last couple of months is that it, it has very strong foam positive aspects to it. If you were doing an infusion bash, do you want to try to get the strike water up and then put some in, say, double course trying to raise up the mash temperature well, at 165? That's what we call an upward infusion mash. And it is something that you could practice at home. And it was the next thing that we were going to talk about because you can infuse an amount of boiling water and you will get a rise in temperature. But there's thermal buffering that goes on. And the best way to account for a lot of this stuff is to use some of the software that's out there, like ProMash um, and Pro Tools and such, that help, they, they deal with those thermal calculations and help you figure out how to get your, uh, your mash temperature where you want it based on upward infusions without going over the amount of water to grist that you want. But I'll tell you, home brewers, we tend to not want to go much above about two quarts per pound. And most of that, again, has to do with mesh geometry, density, the size of our mesh is being much, much smaller. Professional brewers will go anywhere from one and a half quarts if they've got the right kind of system that's generally very flat and wide, where they don't have a very deep mesh bed, to the kind of mesh tubs that are rather tall and cylindrical, where they will go up to four quarts per pound. And all of that has to do with basically not compacting the whole green bed down into a big, you know, piece of pavement that they can't get anything out of. Um, you know, on commercial brew systems, I'm, I'm working anywhere from two and a half to three quarts per pound. But at home, I'm at one and a half. If I go much bigger than that, I can improve my extraction a little bit, but beyond two quarts per pound, my extraction just, just falls off. Because what's happened is, is I've diluted out the enzymes and the starches so much in the water that the enzymes literally can't find the substrate to work on. And so all they're doing is just floating free looking for something to do. Uh, so even that. So all of that has to do with simple kettle ge or, uh, mash time geometry and size scale.
Okay. Um, but sometimes it's kind of confusing to scale down a commercial recipe to a homebrew recipe because we also get different effects because of our mash tun geometry from specialty grains and kind of their flavors. And I could take anybody's recipe here and make it on my system and it will come out entirely different than yours. And give everybody here the same recipe to make, and we could all follow the same procedures and work on the same day, and all get our yeast from the same source. You will still wind up with 14 different beers, and that's simply because of how systems are designed. We do it as a club exercise. <laughs> so it turned out to be true, huh? Oh, yeah. So everybody here adapts their recipes to their system, their circumstance. Everybody does. Just because some guy writes in there that he used a certain amount of chocolate malt in a pilsner does not mean that that's going to work in your system. Okay? All it means is that's what he could get from his local homebrew shop and how what he could get from his out of his system. How his system work. So just pay attention to that when it comes to, to dealing with recipes. So upward in fusion mashes, you would start with a reasonably thick mash down here. You might start with one or even three quarters of a quart per pound. And you might come along and need to infuse as much as another quart per pound to go from protein rest to sacrification. So you go right from three quarters on up, and your overall liquor to grist ratio is basically one and three quarters. If you need to infuse. If you start with a thin mash of one and a half, you're going to wind up with an amazingly thin mash at the end to get the right, um, to get the right uh, temperature. And you may not get the right extraction out of it. So, you know, be very careful. And you don't want it so thick that you basically just wet the grain down and it's got nowhere to go. That won't help anything at all. It has to be some fluidity to the mash in order for anything to really work. Hey, Kevin, yes. why does the uh, thinner or the thicker mash favor the protein? Do you happen to know protein recipe? Mostly because it needs more substrate. What it likes mean? being closer in okay. to, you know, from one job to the next for all kinds of purposes. Okay. Um, it doesn't travel well. Yeah. Okay. Um, it also has a reasonably short lifetime, too, so it, you know, gets out of the grain and ends up in the in the mash, does its job, and it denatures pretty quickly. Um, okay, where was I going with that? Oh, liquor to grist. Have you ever noticed that if you just take all of your runnings, it's rough, It's you're missing some of the water. Obviously, it's locked up in the grain. The grain tends to absorb about 3 quarters of a quart per pound. That's how much water you're going to get left behind. It's either going to be in the grain itself, or it's going to be trapped in between the grains, and you're not going to be able to really get it all out. So just plan on that and account for that in recipes where you need to make sure, you know, if you're doing a barley wine or something, you want to get your full extract out of it, you might have to do a little bit of sparging. Or you might just have to infuse it with a little more hot water to bring it up to a, a mash out, or just bring the temperature a little higher, let it sit for a few minutes, Pull it on out. Okay. Um, let's talk about sparging. 
the next step. Once we have created what we want to create, does everybody get this? The two windows are protein, which, by the way, I forgot to say, this is where, since they're proteins, this is where proteolytic enzymes work. Amylase, the amylase rest, um, this is where the diastatic enzymes work. When you buy grain, you're given a diastatic potential that tells you basically how much enzyme activity it has. It's, just, it's expressed in degrees Littner. And um, the higher that number, the more it can um, the more it can uh, convert not only itself, but grains without any uh, enzymes. Okay? So diastatic proteolytic, and there is a question on the say, what are diastatic and proteolytic enzymes and what do they do? Proteolytic enzymes help break down proteins, are active between about 120 degrees to about 135 degrees. Diastatic enzymes break down sugars, create uh, dextrins, uh, break down starches and sugars, sorry. Uh, create dextrins and are active from roughly 140 degrees on up to 155 degrees and are made up primarily of alpha and beta amylase. Okay? And then you would state what they do. Beta amylase creates fermentability, alpha amylase creates dextrins, while still creating some sugars. Fair enough? So this is how profile mashing matches what decoction mashing does. The thing about decoction mashing is that you create melanoidins in the cooking process. So you will get a fuller, richer, grainy flavor, grain flavor, than you will from a profile mashing. Will it end up any darker? Uh, sometimes, but typically not, because the pH and the thickness of that mash, the pH drops enough that usually it can't, it doesn't really color as deeply as you might think considering how much vigor there is in the oil. So from here, we have sparging. Sparging is nothing more than the rinsing of the grains. There are two relevant methods for rinsing. There are a number of others. Two relevant methods are fly sparge and fly sparge basically says, and both of them work on the same concept that you need to have contact time of water to grain in order to pull things out of the grain. Remember in our water class we talked about water being the greatest solvent there is. And one of the things it will solubilize is starches, proteins, and sugars. And we want it to solubilize that. Once it reaches a certain saturation, as it would in say first runnings, we now have to add more water to be able to get the rest of the goodness out of the grain. And as by doing that, in a fly sparge, we are creating a relatively slow flow coming out. Five-gallon batch seems optimal in terms of time and temperature, at least um, in 
what I've taught people to run it right around three minutes to a quart. You get the most amount of extraction for five gallons, and it takes about 16 minutes to do it. For 10 gallons, I run about two minutes a quart because there's so much more volume that the, that the water has to go through. You still get a lot of extraction out of it, and it only makes it about a 90, 85 to 90 minute uh, runnings, and it keeps the efficiency up. Efficiency is the percentage of goodness that you get out of the grid compared to what's soluble in its uh, in its total weight. So if you divide what you get by what you could get, you have an extract efficiency. And to put that in another way, the rough way of doing efficiency Efficiency says that sugar, if you dissolve one pound of sugar into one gallon of water, you should get a, and this is the final table sugar, you should get a gravity of around 1046. Okay? So that is the, that is the maximum solubility of anything. When you account for what's insoluble in the weight of grain. When you account for that, you get a number that is either 1038 or 1036, depending upon who says. And we're talking about base grain. Depending upon who says, depending upon how old the information is, depending upon who's arguing. 1038 to 1036. This little disparity makes for massive changes in people's efficiencies. Because they tend to use the lower number. And so you're dividing what you get by the lower number, and your efficiency looks bigger. Okay? Based on PML. It's a good round number to use because the percentage of specialty grains is low enough that, yeah, you might get a point or two difference in extract out of that, but overall, they don't account for nearly as much effect on the gravity as the pale malt. So again, when you're talking about the rule of thumbs, the rule of five, based on pale malt, doesn't matter what malt you're talking about, because you're typically talking about very small amounts. With black malt, that you might only use one or two percent of, the fact that you get like 1026 out of it, Makes no difference at all. <laughs> you're not gonna, you're not gonna see any difference in that. So it's not even worth making that count here, in it, unless you're using a program that does that for you. Seventy percent efficiency is nominal, and it equates to ten twenty-six. So a pound of grain mash to yield a gallon of water, not mashed in a gallon of water, because remember we lose three quarters of a quart, but mashed in sparge to yield a gallon of water should give us a gravity of 1026 to get average extraction of 
whenever you read a recipe and you're looking at that and you're looking at the, at the grains and the rest of it, you can start with that number in your head. And if it's easier, say 1025. But 1026 to say that's 70%. And um, you're going to basically say that's where, that's what I expect. That's my minimum expectations from any system, from any brew system. 75%, which is basically about a point more, is you know what what where most people will end up being. 80% is great extraction, and 85, 80-day to 90% extraction is right on the ragged edge of getting too much out of the grain, but is where an awful lot of professional breweries want to be because the difference between an 80% and a 70% extraction is roughly 20% in cost of goods. So they want to lower their cost. And basically what it means is, is that if they get that extraction, five beers cost money and the sixth one's free. Or four beers cost money and the fifth one's free, however you want to say. But that's normal. Batch sparging typically gets right here at the 70% mark. Sometimes a little bit under. And the reason for it is, is that instead of a slow running through the grain, where you have the buffers of pH and you have other things going on between the wort that's already in there and the water that's coming in, you pull all of the water off, which means you pull off all of the enzymes that might still be there to work, or most of them. You infuse with more water. You rely on whatever enzymes might be left over to create any additional amount of conversion that might be in there, or at least pull stuff out. And you rely on the buffering effect of the mash itself to keep the pH in the right area, which it will. But correspondingly, you are dealing with a little bit less efficiency because the, the grain is basically shocked into a whole new environment. Um, I'm not entirely sure of all of the actual chemical mechanics going on in a batch sparge, but I know there are effective differences in you. Um, whether or not there are flavor differences, whether or not there are uh, any other differences, um, chemical differences or such, I don't know. And I'm not sure anybody else has actually tested it. But Denny Kahn is the chief proponent of batch sparging, which he didn't actually invent. He's just become a great spokesman for it. It actually got invented a long time ago in the 80s by a bunch of other brewers who just couldn't get the fly spark part right. They thought, well, what if? And it turned out to work. So fly sparging, basically, throughout the entire mash, we have a flow of water coming all the way through. With batch sparging, we literally add water in batches and then draw it off in batches. So it can be drawn off about as quickly as it goes in, kind of a, you know, goes in, sits for, what, 15 minutes, um, and then you open up the valve and start pulling it off again. Maybe you stir it up. I think that's one of the things you should be doing. And so you might want to recirculate and then draw it all off. My trouble with batch sparging is, is I never know if the second batch is actually pulling as much out as it could or should. I never know if I'm going to actually hit my final gravity. I, my first runnings tend to be about 1086. 1090, and my second runnings on batch sparging tend to be right around between 1016 and 1021. 
I'm not a big fan of it, but then again, I learned how to back sparge a long time ago. I've learned that rule of thumb, and I really enjoy getting 80% efficiency. Because uh, with the amount that I broke, it does add up to a couple of three batches in a year. And who doesn't like that? I have learned that with batch sparging, the total amount of sparge time should be about equal to fly sparging. So as I draw off the first one and I add the water in, I just kind of set my timer and say, okay, I'm going to take 10 minutes to draw that off, so I'm going to let this rest for about 40 minutes. And then I draw it off again, and that dramatically increases the efficiency of batch sparging. Um, so sparge time, it's fast because I don't have to sit there and babysit it, um, but it, Actually, the total sparge time tends to be about equal. At least that's my experience. Anybody have a different experience they can educate me on? I'm all ears. All right. We've dealt with that. And now I have to get to the boil. Boil. Basic elements of a boil. Heat. Open. Open ventilation. Things that oil does, a rolling vigorous open boil is it drives off DMS, isomerizes hops, for stable bitterness. Remember, unisomerized bitterness is not stable, it will end up dropping out and fading away. Isomerized bitterness or isomerized. Um, alpha acids are stable bitterness and will persist. Concentrates. Water. To the, to the volume, proper volume. Um, caramelizes. Though that's not desirable in every style. Sanitizes. Coagulates proteins. actually denatures the proteins, the vigor of the boil, the rolling of the boil, will force the proteins to exude water, which makes the corkscrew up, which makes them visible to us. Anybody that does a 30-minute pre-boil in an all-grain batch will notice that after a while it looks like a drop soup. That is a protein break. Protein break happens basically um, in three places. 
before, actually. It happens right at the beginning of the boil. That foam coming up is actually a protein break. Um, a protein break happens in, in three places. It happens again during the boil. That's where hot break happens. And that is the denaturing of large molecular weight proteins, which reduces work viscosity, um, increases the, the flavor, the grain flavor of the beer, um, increases clarity of the finished beer, and actually enhances head retention by being reduced. Cold break is the um, opposite effect. It's a mechanical effect of denaturing small molecular weight proteins by rapid chilling. So during the chill, we create cold break, and that enhances head retention and enhances clarity in the finished beer. And those are six major reasons for um, for that. Are there any other reasons you can think of of why we would boil the work? I want to stop things like activities. got to heat the wort to stop enzyme activity and preserve the profile of the beer. Can I go? Yeah, yeah you're tired. Well, then I got to or something. Oh, that's true, you do, don't you? Yeah. Don't sleep through it. Well, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, those, are, those are actually all of the major reasons. From there, we ferment. We've talked about fermentation conditions before, especially in terms of yeast. Um, we've talked about um, the effect of chilling yeast to precipitate it out, to increase the uh, clarity. We've talked about lagering. We've talked about that stuff in the yeast class. So we're left with packaging. Packaging is a broad term for bottling and kegging. It is the place where we have the final finished beer. Packaging can include filtering. From filtering, if, if you filter your beer, you have to then condition the beer. Conditioning the beer is carbonating it. You've been given a chart. Carbonation is strictly a mechanical action. No chemistry involved whatsoever. Strictly a mechanical action. It is simply an effect of equilibrium between the head pressure, the gas space up above, and the beer, the dissolved um, CO2 in the beer below. Volumes on there are exactly that. They're the volume of the container you're, you're dealing with. So if you have two volumes of CO2, you've actually got three volumes total because one of those volumes is all of the beer that's in it, and the other two are the gas that's dissolved. That's what that means. How many keg loads or keg sizes amount at, at sea level temp, um, pressure of gas is dissolved in there. The only thing that is important in conditioning is something called lamination. 
Lamination is when the CO2 becomes stable and doesn't just immediately all blow up. So if you shake a rocket egg and you chill it down and you go to tap it and it just it evolves, it has a great head, but there's absolutely no bubbles going on. But three days later, it makes the, the right head and it's got plenty of bubbles. What's happened is, is it has laminated. Another term for that is condition. Okay? Lamination is just the resistance of that gas from coming immediately out of suspension. It's just mechanical. It doesn't, it does not care what the viscosity of the work of the gear is. It does not care what the chemical composition or pH is. It does not care about anything except an equilibrium between the head, what the pressure put on it, and what actually goes and what's actually dissolved in the beer. That's why rocking a keg, you know, if you, if you keg and you rock it, and you can hear it gassing in, all you are doing is creating surface area. More surface area means more dissolved uh, CO2. And then it takes a day or two to laminate. That's it. Perfect. In bottle conditioning of beer, there's a couple of ways in which you can do it. You don't filter. You just have the uh, the beer with whatever spent yeast is in there, whatever living yeast is left over, of which there is an abundance, and you add a specific charge of sugar to create carbonation. If you equate that charge into gravity, if you measure the, the a bottling sugar charge in there, you will notice a rise of 1.002 to the gravity. That's all the charge that you need to create the proper carbonation. Professional breweries like many in Germany and Sierra Nevada actually croisin the beer, but they, they take a sample of that beer up to a lab, put it on a stir plate, and let it go to what they call terminal gravity. That is where the yeast just will not ferment anymore. Because it's so agitated it, there's no, and it ferments much faster in there than it is in the fermenter. And they can go, okay, this batch has a terminal gravity here of about 10.8. So when it hits 10.10, they pull it, filter it, dose it with a little bit more working yeast, living, working, fresh yeast. And in the cases here in Nevada, they also add gelatin in there to make the yeast stick to the bottom. So they dose an absolutely precise amount in there so the sediment doesn't, you know, isn't variable from bottle to bottle. Um, it's a fully filtered beer, dosed in. Many German breweries do exactly the same thing. And what they will actually do is add a slight amount of extra wort in there too, fresh wort that's working. And this is called croisoning. But in each case, the rise over terminal gravity is 1.002 to create a proper amount of CO2 right at around two and a half volumes for most years. Certain styles require three volumes. Those would be Belgians and wheats. Some Belgian styles are up to three and a half, maybe four, like Saison. English cast-conditioned ales tend to be anywhere from one and a half volumes to two and a half volumes. Two and a half is very soda poppy American whiskey. Um, most of us tend to probably carbonate right around two volumes. We've simply learned what pressure, how much time, how much shaking I'm going to do. A lot of people will go ahead and say, yep, I just knock it with 30 pounds of pressure, shake it up for about five minutes and toss it away. Well, sure, but the volume of CO2 they have in there once it all dissolves and once it all hits equilibrium is about equal 
to a standardized method of simply leaving a keg alone under 12 pounds of pressure in about a 40 degree um, refrigerator and it will carbonate up in about four days. So, it can work or just wait, you know, your, your choice. And that's it for process. We've gone all the way through packaging. After that, it's a matter of, clean, of uh, serving. And of course, one of the primary criteria for, for serving is clean glassware, proper serving temperature. We'll get to that as we judge. That's it, everybody. Okay. Thank you. Is this class timing working?